morning, friends. Good morning, friends at our 95th Street campus. So good to be with you guys. Final week of the Holy Trinity. I want to tell you a bit about a guy by the name of Robert Kelly. Robert Kelly loves his family, as many of us do. He loves his family so much that he found a way to work from home so he could be around them more. Robert Kelly is a political political science expert, and he serves as a commentator on news all over the world. And the great thing about technology is that he can uh, provide an interview from home, and it is broadcast from his home office all over the world. Like this week, it went to BBC, all the way to England, and no one knows that he's at home, right? Yeah, well, take a look. Scandals happen all the time. The question is, how do democracies respond to those scandals? Uh, and what will it mean for, uh, for the wider region? I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shift, shifting, shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the North may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. The, um, pardon me. Pardon me. My apologies. <laughs> What is this going to be for the region? My apologies. North, uh, sorry. Um, North Korea, North, uh, South Korea's policy choices on North Korea have been severely limited in the last six months. <laughs> You know, in just one week's time, that video has been seen by over three or 30 million people. Many of you have seen it already. The capacity for these to go viral is mind-boggling, and you see why. That is hilarious, you know. We've all been on the phone trying to have an important conversation, and, you know, we're telling our kids, you know, and trying to keep them at bay. Well... That, uh, today's message is called Team Win, and I would argue that the creation of that video was a team win. Uh, when you want to make a great viral video that involves the family, each member of the family uniquely contributed to make that video awesome. <laughs> Do you know, it's like the little girl with her sunglasses dancing. Is, why am I talking about it? Let's watch it again. I'm going to provide a little commentary on the commentator and I will just kind of point, go ahead, coin out about how each, see here, she does a great job. Dance, woo And uh, this guy telling him, you got a daughter there, and he's trying to push her away. <laughs> and the little baby, <laughs> the stroller coming in just adds, doesn't it? I mean, and then mom, watch how fast she is. Mom is, woo wow. <laughs> and then she thinks, I'm out of the picture by crouching down. Yeah, think again, mom. <laughs> And then dad is trying to answer the questions, but he cannot think. He just, I'm sorry, closes his eyes, pretend this isn't happening. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's drama at its finest, and I'm guessing and predicting that this will live on viral YouTube, whatever, for a long time, making many, many laugh. Well, I'm going to let you know that many theologians describe the Trinity as, as family. In fact, many would say that God created the family to reflect his own nature. If you think about it, the family is community and unity. The family is many persons sharing life, living under one roof, living 
in unity. And the Trinity is, is that. It's persons in unity. What are the persons? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living together, more together than a family is. The unity of the Trinity is seen in the fact that God is only one. There is only one God, but he is the divine family living together. And just as in that video, each member of the family played a unique role in making that viral video awesome, so each member of the divine family plays a unique role in making your video awesome. Your life story, I'm hoping the Lord has it on video. When we get to heaven, I want to watch it. I want to see the unique drama that God is writing in your story. But know this, your story as a Christ follower is marked by the robust participation of all three members of the Trinity. They each have a role that is essential in making your story awesome. You know, it's been said that we Christians sometimes have an overly simplistic view of the gospel. The gospel is the good news, the message of what God is offering through grace. And sometimes Christians oversimplify the gospel message to be this, that because Jesus died on the cross, I have a ticket to heaven. And that's absolutely true. Because Christ died on the cross, I do have a ticket to heaven, and I'm not wanting to minimize the importance of that at all, only to say that the gospel is more than that. The, the offer of God is robust and complex and diversified as represented by the unique contribution of each of the three members of the Trinity. And as we move into our text, we're going to see all three of the persons of the Trinity uniquely involved in your life and mine, making our lives beautiful. And it's going to be a fairly theologically complex sermon here. Some of you may uh, find your mind struggling to, to really understand all that we study together, but I, I, I fear that this high theology could be viewed as an intellectual pursuit, and we fail to remember that it's all about love. And so I've brought a heart just to remind me to remind you that it's all about love. When we look at each one of these contributions that each of the three persons of the Trinity make, at the core of what they're doing in your life and mine is love. God loves you. They love you. And I hope that I can help you see the love. Our passage is a single verse found in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. So let's turn to it now. The Apostle Peter writing to believers, he says this, you people have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Do you see the Trinity in that verse? Absolutely. Let's highlight the three persons just in case you're a little sleepy with an hour less sleep. So here we go. The Father, God the Father, right there. The Spirit, referred to as the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And then the Son, Jesus Christ. And all three of them are mentioned. All three of them are described and their unique 
contribution to your life described. So let's start with the Father. Next slide. The Father does this thing called selecting. All right, wake up. Here you go. Engage the brain. This is a big one. It says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There is a biblical doctrine called election, and election is so important and so precious if we can understand it and appreciate it. So let me try to explain it. The doctrine of election simply states that those who are saved, those who are adopted into God's family and rescued and brought into a reconciled relationship with the Lord, it's because God chose them. Let me be real clear. The Bible says that before the beginning of time, God could look into the future. This verse talks about our chosenness being according to God's foreknowledge. God could see the future. Unlike us, we can't see the future. God can. So God could see all the people that would desire him or in those who wouldn't desire him. And God could see them and God made a decision before the foundations of the earth as to who he would pick to apply the blood of Christ to. Now, here's where it gets debated among Christians. There are many Christians who hold that that choice of God is unconditional. They refer to the doctrine as unconditional election. That means that when God picks certain people, he is not basing his choice on anything in them. I don't believe in unconditional election. I believe in conditional election. As I study scripture, it is clearly to me revealing what God bases his choice on, what condition he's looking for. And the condition is faith. One of the chapters that's been so helpful for me in this area of election is is Romans chapter 9. It describes the the conditions that God could have chosen but didn't. And then it gets finally to the condition he did choose, and that's faith. Romans 9 talks about God could have picked to save and rescue those who were of a particular heritage. He talks about the Jews and some of the Jews believing that their God's chosen people because they're descendants of Abraham. And in that passage, it makes it clear, no, God could have chosen people based on who they're a descendant of, but he didn't. Just because you were raised by Christian parents doesn't mean you're a Christian. And just because you can point to a rich heritage doesn't mean you're right with God. The, The verse, Romans 9, or the chapter, goes on to explain that some people think that they are chosen because of their moral excellence. The passage calls it good works. Some people say, yeah, because I'm so good morally compared to others, because I've done so much religious ritual, God has chosen me. And the passage says, no, he didn't base his choice on that either. And then it finally gets to faith. And faith is this desperate cry for help. At its core, faith is saying, Jesus, you're my only hope. I'm a sinner in need of your help. Help. And God, looking at all the religious responses of humanity through his infinite foreknowledge, could have picked anybody. Who deserves to be saved? Nobody. But God, in his infinite compassion and wisdom, looked at the people who would respond to his wooing with faith and said, I choose you. And folks, 
It's good for us to reflect on God's sovereign choice because we should be so grateful. If not for that choice, we'd be doomed. If he didn't choose me, I'd have no hope. And I don't deserve to be chosen, but I was. Now, can anybody become part of the chosen ones? Yes. We're all invited to place our faith in Christ, encouraged to do so, and all who do turn to God's wooing and respond in faith, Jesus, I need you, all of them, God in his foreknowledge could see their response of faith and they were part of the group that God says, I choose them. And to think about this really matters. I guess, you know, some would say, well, so in some sense we choose God, but in another sense he chooses us. And I think that's true. It's true of marriage too, isn't it? When you look at a married couple, you say, who chose who? Well, we both chose each other. And similarly, we choose to desperately cry out in faith. And God, in his infinite foreknowledge, looked at all these people and he said, it's the family of faith that I choose. And so we are, if you're a Christian, if you are one who has placed faith in Christ, you have been chosen by God. And before you puff out your chest and say, yeah, he chose me, you didn't deserve to be chosen. Your faith earns you nothing. And in grace and in love, he looked to the humble, who are desperately crying out, help, Jesus, help. And God says, I pick you. Here's where the heart, the love comes in. Folks, I hope you feel the love in God choosing you. For God to tenderly look into your eyes and say, I want you to be my... See, the doctrine of election and adoption are closely related. In fact, in Ephesians 1, verse 11... Uh, it says this, Ephesians 1.11 says, We were chosen to be God's own children. Uh, you see the election, you see the adoption. We were chosen by God, and he said, you know, you've cried out in faith, so I want you to become my son, my daughter. Here's a passage from the Old Testament that shows how precious it is to be chosen. Deuteronomy 7, 6, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Folks, if you're God's child, you're his treasured possession. Feel the love. I need the doctrine of election in part because I grew up as a kid lacking athletic ability. And so every time they picked teams on the playground, I was the last one picked. Oh, it's a miserable experience. All you jocks, let me just describe it because you don't know it. You know, you stand there and this captain goes, oh, I want that person with great enthusiasm. And this captain says, oh, I want that person with great enthusiasm. And you just kind of stand there waiting until you're the last person standing and they say, well, Griffin, I guess you're on my team. And they're forced to take you, you know, and it, it, it's hard to not be wanted. And God looks at you. The sovereign of the universe, God the Father, is the one who makes the ultimate decrees and decisions that have eternal implication. And in his sovereign authority, he said, all right, Who am I going to apply the blood of Christ to? I don't have to apply it to anybody. Who am I going to apply it to? Should I apply it to the descendants of Abraham? Should I apply it to all those who are religiously striving to live lives of moral excellence? Nah. Should I apply it to the desperate family of faith that are crying out for help and forgiveness? 
Yeah, that's who I pick. And that's you. And you were chosen. And so we say, Lord, I can't believe that you've selected me. But I say, thank you. You know, I, I got this tradition with my son. I don't do it every night now. I used to do it every night. But as I put him to bed, I will say, hey, Jake, do you know that if God lined up all the little boys in the whole world and invited me to pick anyone to be my son, you know who I'd pick? And he doesn't let me answer. He says, you'd pick me, Dad. I know, I know, I know. And he's grinning ear to ear as he's reminded that he's chosen. And just as Jake loves basking in the fact that I chose to adopt him into my family, so we bask in God's eyes where he says, you're my boy. You're my girl. I choose you. So that's the first expression of love coming straight from the heart of the Father. Let's go uh, back. And now to the next slide. We're going to look now at the Spirit. Uh, God the Father's active in selecting us. God the Father demonstrates his love through selecting us. God the Spirit demonstrates his love through transforming us. Where do I get that in the verse? Here it says, You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God in us. One of the central roles of the Holy Spirit is to indwell God's people. At the moment we place faith in Christ, he says, all right, you're my chosen one. And in that moment, the Spirit of God comes to live in us. And you say, what is God's Spirit doing in me? Well, here it is. He's sanctifying you, which is a big theological term, which means quite literally to make you holy. Some of you are like, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to be a holy roller. Sometimes the word holy has gotten a bad rap in our culture. If you, if you think of holy as someone who thinks of themselves as morally superior to everyone else, that's not holy. In fact, that arrogance is the opposite of holiness. Holiness is true, humble, beautiful character within. It's like being like Jesus. He is the example of beauty that the Holy Spirit wants to form us into. He wants to beautify you. Here, I want to show you a video. This is a, go ahead. This is a video of a gentleman who has been homeless in Grand Rapids, Michigan for years living on the street. And here he's being served by a ministry in downtown Grand Rapids, a Christian uh, rescue mission, a homeless shelter. And they help homeless people get jobs. Not only do they house them, but they help them get jobs. Not only do they line up job interviews, they prepare them for their job interview. And they've got hairstylists who volunteer their services to give these homeless guys a upgrade, if you will. And, and not only do they give them a haircut and a shave and all, as you're about to see, they have clothes, a whole store, if you will, of donated clothing. And they totally transform their attire to prepare them for their job interview. Some of you are like, man, I need to go to her. She, she's good, huh? Look at that. 
<laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit does. Not on the outside, on the inside. When we come to God, we're just a mess. We've got so much junk, things we say, do, look at, think, that are so ugly. And a track record that's just despicable. And the Holy Spirit says, ah, clip, 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 I've got a vision for what I can do with you. And the Holy Spirit dives in and starts transforming us on the inside. Uh, Folks, you say, but that doesn't sound like love. Love would be, you're fine just the way you are. No, these these gals who are cutting this guy's hair and giving him new clothes, are they loving him or are they just showing their rejection of what he looked like before? No, we'd say, no, they're serving him, they're loving him. They want to help him be his best. So the Holy Spirit, though he accepts us as we are and he loves us so much that he accepts us as we are, he loves us too much to leave us that way. And the Holy Spirit of God says, I'm really good at making people more like Jesus and beautiful. So do you mind if I do my work? And we say, no, come do your work. You ask, how does the Holy Spirit transform us and make us more like Christ, more beautiful? Well, one of the things he does is he convicts us of sin. When we start walking down an ugly path, the Holy Spirit goes, whoa, hello. And that happened to me this week. I, uh, it was a Friday. I had... Uh, Oh no, Thursday. I had lunch with a friend and after I had lunch with him, I was driving away and the Holy Spirit showed up. Jeff, Jeff, remember the word slander? Yeah, well you said over lunch. That's what that was. That was slander. And it just became so clear to me and Oh, was I convicted. I saw the ugliness of my own actions with such clarity. You say, oh, so the Holy Spirit just wants to make us feel guilty. No! He wants to lead us to repentance and forgiveness and change. And the next time I'm in a lunch like that and I'm about to go in that same way, I'll remember, oh, the Holy Spirit kind of spanked me for that one. And I want to get it right this time. And not only does the Holy Spirit convict us of our sin and lead us to repentance, he empowers us to get it right the next time. The Holy Spirit in us gives us an ability to live with a virtue we couldn't touch on our own strength. One of the things that the Bible talks about is the gifts of the Spirit, those virtues that the Holy Spirit will enable us to live out that we'd never be able to if it was only our only willpower we were leaning on. Let me read to you some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.20. It says that I said gifts, I meant fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit are love. You got love? Joy. How about that? Got some of that? And peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. Folks, we all long for these beautiful attributes to increasingly be a part of our lives. And the Holy Spirit demonstrates his love for us by transforming us to be more beautiful. The Holy Spirit, he's looking at you right now. And and I don't care if you're in your 90s, you're partially cooked. You're not all done. There's work to be done in your life still. And the Holy Spirit is anxious, saying, oh, you're, you've got some beauty in you now, but you just wait. When I'm done with you, it's going to be stunning. And the enthusiasm of God to refine us and transform us and grow us and develop us 
is a demonstration of his great love. He loves us enough to accept us as we are, but he loves us so much that he can't leave us where we are. All right, next slide. The Father shows his love by selecting us. The Spirit shows his love by transforming us. The Son shows his love by guiding us. It says actually two things about the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, that is Jesus Christ. One thing it says here is that we uh, are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Obedience is our part in recognizing the authority or what we call the lordship of Christ. One of the roles of the Son is to be our Lord. Lord means leader or guide or boss, however you want to put it. But the idea is that he calls the shots and we submit and obey. And you say, is that loving? A lot of times we struggle with this lordship, the the surrendering of our control over to Jesus. And we say, man, why, why does he want to get his nose in my business? Why doesn't he just bug out? Why can't he love me by letting me do whatever I want? Folks, his leadership is love. Jesus knows what's best. And for him to see the best path and not speak up and seek to guide you in it would be a lack of love. And so it's out of love that Jesus says, uh, you look a little confused. Do you mind if I tell you the best way to live? Here would be an example. We have uh, guest services volunteers who greet new people in particular, everybody, but new people in particular as they visit our church. And when a new person, a guest, comes to our church, frequently they've got eyes that are like saucers. They're like freaking out. They're like, oh, this is kind of a big church. Or at 95th, they're, I'm a little nervous. And they got their kids at their side. And you can just tell, well, the guest services person rushes up to lead them, to guide them and says, hey, can I show you around? Welcome to our church. I want to show you where our children's ministry is. I want to show you how to check them in. And here's how you can pick them up. And oh, and here's where you can get a coffee. And let me show you where the service is. You say, are those guest service people just like power mongers who love telling folks what to do? No, they're lovers. That's what they are. And they know that through guiding, they can help guests have the best experience possible. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants to give you the best experience possible. Jesus looks at us as we face life, and we kind of got that visitor guest look where our eyes are bugging out, and we're like, oh, life is big, bold, and confusing. And Jesus says, I know the best way to live. Every single command Jesus Christ gives us is not to rob us of life, but to give us life at its full. And so it's all love. It's all love. If you can't see the love in the command of Christ, look closer because it's there. And so as a result, knowing that it's all in love, we should say, Jesus, guide me. I won't fight you anymore. I used to say, no, I want to do this. Now I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bow. And say, just say the word, and I will do it your way. If I get it, if I don't get it, I don't need you to persuade me. I'm just going to follow. Because I know you love me. And I trust that all of your guidance, commands, are out of love for me. So Jesus, the Son, shows his love by guiding us. The second verse here says, next slide, he also shows his love by rescuing us. 
sprinkling with his blood. Here, we refer to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've heard those terms before, quite possibly. Christ is Lord and Savior. The Lordship is here to be obedient to him. The Savior is found with this sprinkling with his blood. That's the rescue of, of Jesus. Uh, you, you may say, what do you mean sprinkled with blood? In the Old Testament, they used to take some of the blood from the animal sacrifices and sprinkle it on the people and splatter them with blood. And you'd be like, oh, man, do you know blood stains don't come out of togas? You know, and then you'd be upset. But it was meaningful because the, those blood stains were a visible reminder that I am who I am because of the sacrifice that was done on my behalf. And now, as we enter into the New Testament era, Christ comes. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, meaning Jesus will die to pay the death penalty for our rebellion. And the cross of Christ is the saving work of Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross satisfying the death penalty that our rebellion requires. He's our substitute, taking our place so that we can be made right with God. With justice satisfied, we can be forgiven and reconciled. And so let the blood be splattered on my life because I want to look down and be reminded it's the blood of Christ that's saved, that's rescued my soul. Jesus, we're going to take communion today. And Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, took the cup and he said, this, this drink is symbolic of my blood, which is sprinkled. He said, my blood is about to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ looked at his disciples on that night and he goes, I'm going to die willingly shedding my blood. And here's why. It's for you. So you can be rescued from eternal despair. So you can be forgiven. That same night, Jesus says, remember this. The greatest love on planet Earth is shown when somebody dies for their friends. And that's what I'm about to do for you. Jesus says, know that I love you. And the rescue of Christ on the cross, the rescue of us through Christ on the cross, is the greatest demonstration of God's love. Rescue means love. In fact, there's a a gentleman by the name of Tahir. Let's put his picture up. Tahir Mahmud is a Pakistani immigrant, computer programmer. You probably don't look at him and say, there's a tough guy. But yet, though you don't see a tough guy, you should know that Tahir fought a guy hand-to-hand combat. A guy much bigger than him. A guy who was an experienced street fighter. Tahir had no weapons but his hands. The other guy had a huge knife. And Tahir charged him to fight. And you say, what would possess Tahir to do that? Well, here's what it was. The other guy was stealing Tahir's car, his BMW. And you say, I'm still not buying it. Why in the world would he love his BMW so much that he'd be willing to be cut to pieces? Well, here's why. His three-year-old son, unbeknownst to the carjacker, his three-year-old son, was strapped in the back seat of the BMW. And Tahir said, I just knew I will give everything to save my son whom I love. And eventually the bad guy ran away 
And Tahir was bloodied, but grateful that he had fought to save his son. Rescue is all about love. And Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm willing to fight. I'm willing to bleed. I'm willing to die. Because I love you. Let's go back to our verse. Folks, do you see? Next slide. The three persons of the Father are all expressing unique gracious activity in our lives. It's the wholeness of the gospel, the good news, that we are selected and transformed and guided and rescued. It's kind of, here, you know what it reminds me of? We have a tradition in our family called the kissing attack. The kissing attack. Uh, We used to do it a lot when we were the kids were real little, but we still do it occasionally today. I'll, I'll come up to family members and I'll say, hey, kissing attack on Janae, our middle child, you know. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, good idea. And they'll go, hey, Jorah, kissing attack on Janae, you know. And we, so all of the other four will gather. Janae will be just standing in the kitchen, you know, innocently. And I nonchalantly come walking up to her left side. And Jen comes around, walking towards her right side. And Jake's coming up behind and Jorah's approaching from the front. And all of a sudden, Janae goes, oh, no. I know what's happening, but it's too late to run. We press in, surrounding her. We grab her and pin her arms. Ah, she screams. And the smooching starts as all four just start kissing her and kissing her and kissing her. And though we fight and though we squeal, we love it. There is something about that expression of love from all the members of the family colliding on you at that moment. You know what's going on right now? A divine kissing attack. The divine family we just studied, and we realized that, wow, we are surrounded by love. Folks, God is desiring you to feel it right now. Here's your reality right now. The Father is approaching from your right side, and the Father's coming in saying, I'm in charge of it all. And by my sovereign decree, I have seen your faith, and I choose you. The Father's whispering in your ear, you're my son, you're my daughter, and you'll always be. And the Spirit is coming from the other side, and the Spirit's pressing in, and he's got scissors and a comb, and he... He says, oh, I make people beautiful. And I love you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. And so this week I got plans to grow you and develop you and make you beautiful because I love you. And Jesus, the son, is coming to us from the front and he's leaning in and he's saying, I'm your Lord. And I want to run the show not because I'm power hungry, but because I want to guide you into a life that's extraordinary. And every day I will show you my ways. And as you follow, you will see the wisdom of my ways. I'm doing it because I love you. And Jesus says, I'm your rescuer. Look at my nail-scarred hands and feet. I willingly, enthusiastically gave my life to save your soul. Jesus says, look at my eyes. Remember, I do this because I love you. And all of a sudden, the, the, the Trinity, the Holy Family, is pressing in on us. Feel the love. You can squeal and squirm if you want to. 
I'd encourage you to enjoy it. I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to celebrate communion. In fact, the ushers are going to come forward and pass out the cups. You'll get, you'll see if you're a guest with us, the, the communion is served with, you'll see two cups stacked together. The, the wafer, the bread is in the lower cup and the juice is in the upper cup. So take a stack of cups and just hold it. And then after a song, we'll take communion together. So let's pray. Lord, good verse, God. It helps us see you, your triune, trinitarian nature. And not persons of inactivity, but persons of activity. Lord, we love what you do. And we invite you to do it more in us. Open our eyes to the truth we've studied. Open our sensibilities so that we can see and experience the reality of the Father choosing and the Spirit transforming and the Son guiding and rescuing. God, we don't want to just know about it. We want to feel it. And we want to enjoy the totality of your multifaceted love for us. Jesus, you called us to approach the table and to take communion, to remember what you did to show your love. We gather to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.